Welcome to Money in the Mind. Join Andy, a mental health therapist, and Aaron, an accountant, as they explore personal finance, psychology, and provide resources to help on your financial journey. Happy New Year, everyone. Today, it is just me, Aaron, recording. Andy is taking this one off. He's got a newborn. He's got a a young daughter, a teenager in the house, and his wife is going through treatment. So um, we're going to give him a break on this recording, and he'll be back next time. No fears. Things are going well with him, but just just a lot going on for him right now. So it's just going to be me today, and I'm going to try to keep this short but wanted to present just a, a couple ideas to you as we start a new year. And part of this is looking back on 2020. And um, my favorite book that I read that's money related in 2020 is called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. So we're going to take a look at that as kind of a best book, best finance book of 2020 type of episode here and present just some related ideas for that book. So since this is just me, um, I wanted to kind of break this up a bit so that it's maybe a little bit easier to listen to. And there's a there's a good reason why solo radio hosts, solo podcast hosts, there are, there are few and far between in terms of how many people are really, really good at it. And I would not necessarily think that I would include myself in that category. So to try and keep this interesting and upbeat. I'm going to present three ideas that I learned in 2020. Two of them are from the best personal finance book of 2020. Again, The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. I really encourage everyone to read it. It's extremely easy to read, very understandable. It's not filled with jargon. It's all filled with really basic, easy to understand, but I would say really profound ideas about money. So let's just get into it. We're going to have three points that I'll go through and share with you. And if if you have feedback, feel free to send us an email, moneyinthemind at gmail.com. But to, to start this off, our first idea for today's episode is that we don't know our goals. So th- there are there are people for whom this is this is not true, but I would say those types of people aren't aren't too frequent. They're not too common. So we don't necessarily know what our goals are. And one example, I was just talking to my wife about this this morning. I asked her, you know, did you know you wanted to be a teacher when you were when you were a kid growing up? And the answer was basically yes. As soon as she stepped foot into preschool and got into her kindergarten and her first grade and elementary years, she just loved being at school. She loved her teachers and she kind of knew, okay, I really like this. This is something that I might want to do. And that that held true for her into middle school, high school, and as she got a teaching degree in college. So she kind of had a goal to become a teacher. But if you think about a lot of people, that's not as clear cut for for many. And, and sometimes it is, but sometimes it's not. So for myself, as an example, I didn't know what my goal, what my career aspiration goals were when I was in high school, much less in college, much less when I was out of college and already had an accounting degree. So the idea that we don't know our own goals sometimes is is important because 
when you're thinking about what you want to do with your personal financial situation, it's not always easy to know, all right, people like Andy and myself, we frequently recommend, okay, spend money in accordance with your goals. Well, what does that even mean? What are your goals? Sometimes people don't even have a clue what their own goals might be. And 10 years down the line, five years down the line, whatever the length of time might be, it's not easy to know what your goals are, especially when your circumstances can change. Sometimes very quickly and sometimes just over time, you develop different preferences. Your circumstances change. You might uh, have a spouse. You might have children. You might move somewhere far away. You might completely change careers. And any any of those changes are understandably probably going to change what your goals are. So when people like Andy and I say, what are your goals? Spend money, align your financial situation in a way that lines up with your goals. Well, is that is that always really helpful? And this is an idea that I got from a guy named Michael Kitsis, who is in the financial planning world, a very well-known person. He's he's kind of a advisor to financial advisors and creates a ton of helpful and useful content to help financial advisors in their practice with helping their clients. So um, if you're into that kind of thing, Michael Kitsis, he has an incredible number of resources He writes about retirement planning, investing, but he also gets into a lot of behavioral, emotional sides of money. And that's kind of what I'm drawing from today. So Michael Kitsis, he had an article, a transcript, a a transcript of a video that he made with another financial planning person, um, an author, Carl Richards. And Carl Richards, I'm going to plug his book called The Behavior Gap right now. And it's it's an excellent, excellent book. We're going to have a couple of book recommend, recommendations today. The Behavior Gap is a great personal finance book, another one that's really easy to read for anyone. The coolest thing about it, Carl Richards used to write little like napkin cartoons for the New York Times. And he has an entire book about personal finance that's just filled with these little like napkin illustrations of, again, simple but profound personal finance concepts that it's really, really easy for anyone to pick up on. You don't have to know the difference between a mutual fund and an ETF, for example, to be able to read the Carl Richards book, The Behavior Gap. So anyways, um, Michael Kitsis and Carl Richards teamed up and had an entire discussion on how when they as financial advisors ask clients, well, what are your goals? And talking about goals-based financial planning for people, oftentimes people just don't know. One of the, a, f- a few quotes from the transcript here, um, Michael says, nobody knows what their goals are. Carl says, goals are guesses. Uh, Michael, for many clients, goals aren't even guesses. They're just plucked out of thin air. Carl said, we look for our hint about what we want through what everybody else wants. Nobody knows, and if they do know, and if they pretend to know, it's just a guess based on what they saw on Instagram. So even people that might have a, you know, might have a decent financial house in order, they, they still don't necessarily know what their long-term goals or even maybe what their short-term goals are. Do people actually know what that means? Goals can change, and sometimes people don't even know what 
you know, what's possible for their financial future, what, the, what they might do when they retire or if they want to retire, what kind of work do they want to be doing in the future? Those types of goals, sometimes like with my wife, they can be really easy for some people. They might know, okay, I know, I know what I want to do. And it could, it could be an easy conversation, but for probably greater than 50% of people, the answer to what are your goals is, is difficult and might be like Carl Richards says, plucked out of thin air based on what you saw on Instagram. You might not have given it a ton of thought and you might not just even know what the possibilities are because things are constantly changing and it's difficult for any of us to know what our circumstances are going to be one year, two year, five years, 10 years down the line. So what they recommended instead is instead of talking about goals-based financial planning, they discuss the idea of possibilities-based financial planning because some people, again, they don't even know what might even be possible. So if I, one, one value add that a financial advisor can have, and, and I'm not a financial advisor, but I like to, I like to read their content. I like to get some of these ideas from really smart people who do financial advising like Michael Kitsis, Carl Richards, etc., so that I can kind of keep my ear to the ground on good practices to help people with their money. Because of course, there's some obvious overlap with what Andy and I are doing on this show. So anyways, they talk about instead of talking, instead of looking at the term goals-based, instead to look at what's they call possibilities-based financial planning. Somebody might have a goal of retiring with $1 million, but what does that even mean? What can they do with that $1 million? What if they could retire sooner with $800,000 instead? And those are, those are big numbers for some people, but, but they could be smaller numbers as well. So if somebody has a basic picture of what they think they might want in the future, then a financial planner often will say, okay, you need X amount of dollars by this age and then you can retire and here's how you'll spend it down over a length of time. And that's helpful. That's kind of ultimately what financial planners do in a very, very dumbed down, oversimplifying way for me to put it right here. But financial planners help people figure out how much money they need to live with. So it was a really interesting idea because, again, Andy and I talk about, well, spend money that aligns with your goals. But what are your goals? Is that actually a helpful question to ask? And I think it, I think it still can be. It's, it, there, there's not a definitive answer that says no. But finding out where your goals are can be really hard because we just don't know what to expect even next week, much less years down the line. So I think a more helpful way to frame this is what are your values? Because your values, thinking about what could be, what are possibilities for the future, planning for possibilities, planning based on what your personal values are can be a much more helpful framework. And it might seem like it's semantics here, but I I do think using a term like values, um, possibilities, or another word that Michael and Carl used was purpose. If you can kind of figure out, okay, what what is my purpose? What is my what are my values? And often those values those don't tend to change over time. So if you spend in accordance with your values and allow for a wide range of possibilities within those values, that can be a really helpful way to frame how to spend your money. If you really value spending time with family, spending time with friends, 
if you really value some type of community service, maybe you really value art, maybe you really value, you know, uh, a certain political framework or, or a religion or whatever the case may be, if you've got those really, really strong principles and values and purpose, and that's not always clear either, but, but most people, by the time they're, you know, in their working years, they have some type of idea, okay, here's, here's the type of person I want to be. Here's the type of impact I, I want to make. I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like, but based on these values that I have, how can I align my financial situation in a way that meets those values? So I think that's a helpful way to consider what people want to do with their money. And with that, with that idea in mind, I wanted to move on to my second point, Point two out of three. So again, uh, we're going to just kind of try to break this up into, into short segments here. The second idea that is, is along the same lines as aligning your financial life in a way that matches up with your values, with your purpose, with the possibilities, is the idea of buying time. And this, this was, to me at least, probably the most interesting and and helpful way to frame how I view money for myself. And this is, again, this is an idea from Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. And he has a lot of really good kind of themes throughout the book. But I would say the idea of buying time is maybe one of the top three kind of ideas that he presents in the book. And this is something I love. And and I'll fully acknowledge some of this comes from a place of being privileged enough to even think about an idea like buying time. So many people, their day-to-day, and especially in a year like 2020, which which we've passed, but the actual economic reality for a lot of people as we're into the first couple of days of 2021, the economic reality is still the same for people that they might have not had a job for months. They might have might have reduced income. Maybe their sense of purpose and their values have kind of just gone out the window because they're just trying to make it on a day-to-day basis. And I have a, a ton of understanding for that and want to acknowledge that a lot of what you hear on <laughs> blogs, podcasts, if you watch YouTube videos, whatever it might be, read books on personal finance, a lot of it is geared for people that kind of have the ability to even make changes. Um, some people, they're just trying to make it day-to-day. So I just want to say like, I, I hear that. I hear you, the folks that are in a tough situation. I don't have answers for that today, but I just want to, again, acknowledge that I'll, a lot of what I'm going to say is, is coming from kind of a place of of privilege. And I've been extremely lucky in a number of ways to be able to be able to consider some of these ideas. And, and Morgan Housel would, would say the exact same thing. None of these smart people who talk about money, people whom I respect, none of them would say, you know, everyone's got it figured out or everyone's capable of doing everything they need to make their financial lives better. Sometimes people just don't make enough money. And it's not necessarily because they've got some kind of flaw or defect. It's It's just because they've had barriers that maybe other people haven't. So, a big caveat that I like to mention because this stuff isn't easy and for some people they're they're not even able to think about it just because they're just trying to make it through the day. So so uh, I hear you if if you want to talk to us Andy and I 
we we would love that we're glad to we're glad to listen to people and to be able to just hear what you have to say about your situation so anyways the second idea again here is is to buy time if you're in a position to do it buying time has kind of become my primary way to think about money instead of thinking about here's all the stuff I want to buy with my money, I'm thinking about how do I want to use my time? And it's, again, very similar to the idea of how, what is important to me? What do I value? What are the principles that I hold? How can I align my financial situation in a way that fits as opposed to thinking about here's all the stuff that I could buy? And those aren't, those aren't two kind of hard and fast categories that people fall into, but the idea of buying time makes you less focused on dollars and cents and more, I think, focused on things like people and causes and values that are important to you. So I've got a a really great quote here from Charlie Munger. He is now 97 years old. He just turned 97 on January 1st. And Charlie Munger, if you're not familiar. He is kind of Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He and he and Buffett have been friends and partners in running the Omaha-based company Berkshire Hathaway for decades now. So happy 97th birthday to Charlie Munger. Um, Charlie Munger, a, a very, very wealthy man. He wanted to become wealthy back when he was in his 20s and 30s, not because of Uh, what he says, wanting to get the Ferraris. So I'll just read the quote here. Charlie Munger, I had a considerable passion to get rich, not because I wanted Ferraris. I wanted the independence. I desperately wanted it. So Charlie Munger, he wanted to buy time. He wanted to amass a sum of wealth, not so that he could get the fancy cars and houses, but so that he could wake up every day and be able to say, I'm going to do what I want with my time and not be beholden to to somebody else. And it doesn't that doesn't have to be a selfish thing. It can it can be a a way to spend just spend your time in a way again, spend your time in a way that you want. What's important to you? So Morgan really takes this idea and puts it in such an eloquent way. So Morgan Housel says, the highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up every morning and say, I can do whatever I want today. Aligning money towards a life that lets you do what you want, when you want, with who you want, where you want, for as long as you want, has incredible return. We've used our wealth to buy bigger and better stuff, but we've simultaneously given up more control over our time. At best, those things cancel each other out. So a really interesting concept that's really changed the way that I think about my own money situation where I want to buy time. Morgan mentions, and this is something I've seen other finance writers say or mention, is a book called 30 Lessons for a Living, where a gerontologist, Carl Pillimer, I might be mispronouncing that, but Carl interviewed 1,000 elderly Americans, and out of those 1,000 people, not a single person said that they wished they had worked as hard as they could to make money to buy the things that they wanted. Not a single person in a thousand said, it's important to be wealthy as, as the people around you. It's important to even try to be more wealthy than the people around you because that's an indicator of success. Nobody said that. Not one person, not one of these elderly 1,000 Americans that Carl Pilmer interviewed said that we should choose work based on desired future earning power. Again, 
aligning our activities, our day-to-day, our weeks around what we value. And then, you know, years down the line, we can hopefully say, well, I did what I could and not anyone based on this book. And I've only read the articles about it. I haven't read the whole book myself, but people, when they've, when they're past their working years, they don't often think about, man, I wish I would have tried to earn a lot more money. I wish I would have worked 80 hour weeks instead of 60 hour weeks. Not many people say that. They often have those things that they wish they would have done, like spend more time with their family, spend more time with their friends, give, give away money, do, do something beneficial that helps other people. And those are very broad categories, of course, but, but using wealth to buy, again, bigger and better stuff to buy the Ferrari isn't necessarily going to provide the most return on, on investment of, of your time. And again, that's speaking very broadly. For some folks, that's, that's not the case. I've got a couple of neighbors, my next door neighbor and then a neighbor, oh, two or three houses down. They both have these old classic cars that are super cool. And that is part of what they value. So we like, sometimes people like to dunk on cars. They like to dunk on buying a nice house. That's not necessarily what I'm saying here. If those are things that are important to you, having, having a nice house, maybe to host family and friends on holidays or weekends, whatever the case may be, sometimes those are part of people's value systems. So that that's not a bad way to, to spend. Or if someone might have spending that they regret, it's, it's, it's never too late to say, okay, sure, I acknowledge that it happened. Let's, let's keep moving forward with other things that I value. So that was, that was point two, buying time. If you can buy time, time for everyone is limited and kind of theoretically, at least money is something that can compound over decades and decades. And there's almost no, there's almost no upper limit on what someone can earn. Now, of course, it's not easy to earn a lot of money. It's not super easy to amass a lot of wealth, but there's always more money to be made, but everyone Everyone has a limited amount of time. And, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm in my 30s, so I'm not like what I would consider old. But one of the things that I've become very keenly aware of is just, it's, it's how fast time goes. And so my desire to want to buy time is becoming inc- kind of, it's, it's increasing in magnitude because I'm, I'm super aware of, oh, my goodness, Time is moving super, super fast, so I want to use it as well as I can. I don't want to be chained to a chained to a desk my whole life. So I'm just going to save as much as I can so that I can someday be able to say, I'll wake up and I can do what I want with whom I want, how I want, for as long as I want every single day. So that's something that was really effective, affecting to me, and maybe it's not... For you that's listening, but I would encourage you to to read the entire book, Psychology and Money, to get the full context of that. And there might be something that stands out to you differently. So the third and final idea, and I'm going to keep this short because running, listening to one person talk for 20 plus minutes is probably not, uh, again, if you want to buy time, maybe that's not the way that you want to spend your own time. So the last idea that I got from Morgan Housel's book is uh, j- traits of people with enduring personal finance success. So what 
what are some traits? It's not an exhaustive list. Some of the key traits that people who are financially successful, that doesn't mean that they're rich necessarily. It doesn't, nece- it doesn't mean that they've got a six-figure-plus job. But what are some traits of people who have enduring personal finance, finance success? And one of them is, it's, it's one of those simple but not easy, is folks that save a lot. Morgan says, since you can build wealth without a high income, but have no chance of building wealth without a high savings rate, it's clear which one matters more. So you can build wealth with a high savings rate, even if you don't have a super high income. And again, I'm acknowledging that some people, their income doesn't even support all of their basic food, shelter, you know, warmth, etc. Acknowledging that for folks that, you know, have the ability to save, those who save a lot don't have to make a ton of money to ha- to be to put themselves in a good financial position where they can buy their financial independence someday. Um, another trait of people who have enduring personal finance success, and this is one I, I kind of came up with based on reading Morgan's book, um, an 8% return is better than a 12% return. Okay, that's going to sound weird. If you're making 12% on maybe your investments, if you've got a workplace 401k, if you've got IRAs, if you've got just taxable accounts, who in their right mind would say, yeah, I'll take 8% over 12%. Nobody would say that. I wouldn't even say that. But when is an 8% return better than a 12% return? Well, it's when the person earning 8% doesn't necessarily need 12% to finance their lifestyle, to finance what what they what they're doing with how they spend their time so someone who needs a 12% return to keep up somebody who's got lifestyle inflation maybe they make a high level of income and then their spending and their lifestyle inflates with their inf- with their increasing income so somebody who needs a 12% return might actually be worse off than somebody who doesn't have that lifestyle inflation and might only earn like 8% return on their investments. And this is a, a again, a, a really profound idea that I learned from Morgan Housel that when you don't need as much to be content, your lifestyle doesn't need to inflate as you maybe earn more over time. People, of course, generally earn more over time. So sometimes if you, if you're saving a lot, if you don't need a ton of money to to do the things that you want to do, then 8% is fine. And you don't necessarily need a 12% return. Chasing super high stock market returns, Tesla has been going gangbusters lately. There's all sorts of financial success stories of people who make it, who strike it rich in the stock market, for instance. And that's not a bad thing on its face value. But for those who... I would say have pretty decent financial habits, earning an 8% return is going to be enough because they don't need a huge, huge, huge amount of money to be able to do the things that are important to them. So when is 8% better than 12%? Well, it's when the person earning 8% doesn't need the super great investment returns because they've got, they're, they're doing things that they enjoy. They're 
doing the things that are important to them and they don't need to live kind of that high life, so to speak, and to be able to keep the income churning and to keep making more and more and more money in order to to keep their spending going. So it's it's a classic example of somebody who makes a ton of money but hasn't actually saved anything um, is kind of an example of that compared to somebody who doesn't make a ton of money but they're they're saving a lot and they don't have that lifestyle inflation. As their income goes up, their spending goes up at the same time. If you can build in a way for your income as it your income increases, your lifestyle does not increase at the same rate, then you'll be much better off than the person who's, you know, again, living that high life, so to speak. So that's kind of that's kind of what I wanted to say my my three ideas Nothing super, I don't know, groundbreaking, but the way that folks like Michael Kitsis, Carl Richards, Morgan Housel, and so many others, the way that they write about these things, a lot of great people and resources out there that you can find. So I didn't expect to take 30 plus minutes, but thank you for listening today. Again, if you have questions, reach out to us, moneyandthemind at gmail.com. Hope everyone has a good start to 2021. Everyone stay safe and thank you for listening to Money and the Mind.